0: Hi, and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's show, we're joined by Mona Holmes. Mona is a storyteller, it's the first thing she notes in her Twitter bio. She's a reporter for Eater LA. That's la.eater.com. So our topic today is food journalism, which is another new one for us. Mona, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Mona has been at Eater for almost four years. Her job titles have included manager and coordinator. She worked briefly at NPR, but I'm most curious about creator, community builder, owner. So share your journalism (laughs) path with us.
1: There was a period during my career that started back in 2002 when I created a website that focused on female DJs, vocalists, and producers. And and I did it just because at the time I was very much into dance music, electronica, whatever you wanna call it. That's what we called it back then. And I wound up partnering with a woman that I met online in London who is still one of my best friends. And we wound up just developing this business idea that helped amplify those artists who were, I, I felt were overlooked. And, and so we would write stories and it eventually turned into a booking agency where could, because people kept calling us and saying, you know, can I get a techno DJ in Texas? And, and I, do you know anyone? And I would say, yeah, sure. And so that eventually put that creative kind of title into business owner. And, uh, and it was fun. It was a lot of work. You know, I I got burned out pretty Well, not quickly enough. We did it for nine years or so. So until I said, you know, I can't do this anymore, but I would much rather, you know, and also too, my, my life had changed at that point. And, you know, I had moved from DC to California and I had a really great you know, meeting with my husband, my then boyfriend at the time, and he convinced me to move to Los Angeles, in which case I started to kind of turn towards writing food, uh, about food. And, and that was kind of the start, but I also have a background in restaurants because so many of the jobs that I've had over the years didn't pay a lot. And so I supplemented my income by waiting tables, which I I loved. I absolutely loved it. Not enough to go back to it, but it is absolutely a really wonderful way to learn about restaurant operations and customers and food and different types of of cuisines and and how much of a miracle it is for the food to arrive for four people all at the same time like i don't think people really know like the high level of skill that it takes to be able to deliver on that and uh, i think if more people did they would appreciate it a lot more because there's just so many things that can go wrong, but because of these really highly skilled chefs, sous chefs, chef de cuisines, managers, you know, I, I have a very good sense of what makes a good restaurant run. I
0: was going to say, so you, you are someone who essentially has knowledge from the inside that you're able to apply to the outside now. I hope so. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> All right. So explain the path to eater.
1: So when I was, I also wound up consulting for a few restaurants very early in like, I'd say about 2014, 2015, just helping them with their social media and their online messaging, applying some of the same skills that I had from from SheJ. And, but at that point I had started pitching my own work and wound up getting some attention from LA Weekly back before it was bought by another, another conglomerate. And, and I I loved writing stories about restaurants. I mean, I know the city extremely well and, you know, but in most uh, industries like this, when you're creative, you know, you can have all the skill in the world, but you still need someone to give you a break. And my break was by my editors, Matthew Kang and Farley Elliott, who saw something in me And decided to bring me on board and it was truly a wonderful thing because the relationship between
0: all of us is is really awesome what is your goal as a writer for them
1: uh a goal as a writer for eater i'd say it is to tell really great stories about people that are not necessarily written about or paid attention to to make sure that I can either tell someone's story, teach someone something or make some significant change like inspiration or hopefully, in some cases, a policy change, and to do it in a way where I'm happy with the work. And any- also be a ni- and also be a nice person. It is important to me to not be an asshole. <laughs>
0: All right, the first <laughs> profanity that we've had. What is, what is an example of something that you've done, uh, that you've written that changed policy?
1: Well, there was a business, I'll share it with you after. Uh, but there was a business that had bought up this entire block in Silver Lake, California, which is like a very central part of LA, you know, where there's a ton of gentrification coming in. It used to be a largely Latino neighborhood. And it has changed so much in the last decade. And this development company came in and decided to push all of the tenants out and on their website advertised that they were very happy with gentrification, that they were, you know, that they could make a difference with changing the neighborhood for the better, in quotes. And I saw that on their site and I said, well, that's a great question. And whenever I see something like this, my, my husband always goes, uh-oh, <laughs> they messed with the wrong person. And so I wrote about it and spoke to some of the tenants who told me some of the circumstances of their leaving, one of them being a restaurant that I love. And, and the next thing you know, their website was completely scrubbed and changed. And I have no idea. I don't, I sincerely doubt that their business strategy has changed, but their marketing strategy certainly did. And uh, yeah. So as far as the policy goes, you know, I'm not so sure that it's that that is like the best example, but I can definitely say that there are some times when I notice that the needle gets pushed a little bit more after I write a story about the LA city council or the board of supervisors, you know, It's important for anyone in, in any position to ask politicians hard questions or question what they're doing just so that they can see that there's likely a position that they haven't identified or thought about. So, so I take that part of my job very seriously and hope I can do more in that regard.
0: I like that that you brought up the idea of politicians and approach to politicians. Uh, a couple mm-hmm. of episodes, Steve Novotny, who is on the other side of the country in West Virginia, talked to us about that from the perspective of inspecting the bridges in the state and taking close-up photographs of different mm-hmm. issues with bridges across the state of West Virginia, and how so- all of a sudden things changed because yeah. he had gone in, and that's that's what journalists do. Yes. All right, an- another on a maybe a, a different kind of note. You talked about people, how much, how much this, this applies to people. Let's just talk about the story overall. You get a story about a former Compton beauty queen who is the master Mm -hmm. of the funnel cake. Tell us about that piece.
1: (laughs) You know, it's fun diggity funnel cakes is the name of the business. And if there's ever a reminder that people need to reach out to writers and journalists um, and editors, this is one of them the owner who is Cheyenne is one of my favorite people in the world because she's so bubbly. She sent me an instant message through Instagram saying, I'd love for you to come down and try my funnel cakes. And this is deep in the pandemic, you know, like actually right before Los Angeles shut down completely, like where we were having thousands of cases a day and it was, it was bad. And she said, you know, come down and try my funnel cakes. And there was nothing more that I wanted that was, than was then to try something fun and delicious. And, and so I went and met her and I was so taken by her personality and her story that I, I knew that I wanted to write about her, but you know, I just took a step back a little bit and observed her. I went and just watched people come up to her window. She operates out of her house and absolutely loved that she had such a commitment to serving her community. Like she has no desire to, to sell funnel cakes anywhere, but Compton because her business has everything to do with where she lives. And, and so all of that made an inspirational story, but also to like, just, I mean, who doesn't love funnel cakes (laughs) and you can really only get them at like amusement parks or fairs or Disneyland or something along those lines. But, and actually it's interesting because I didn't realize it, but LA actually has quite a few funnel cake businesses, but they're not doing it like Cheyenne Brown does. And, uh, and I, I absolutely respect what she does and hope that she can only have some more continued success.
0: One of the things that I notice as I go through Idra, whether it's your stories or other people's stories, and it was true in this story as well, photography is really important. Mm-hmm. How much does photography get taken into consideration as you're reporting on something?
1: It's, it's something that I've had to learn how to do, and that's because Idra has really good people to help show us the way. Our, we have an art director, Brittany Holloway Brown, who actually teaches us how to make sure that we have a picture that helps move the story along. And, and her entire, I mean, her idea is really simple. She said, you need to think about the pictures that you want before you start writing the story. And, and so now it's, it's at the point where like the second that I get an idea of what the story is about, I start writing down ideas of what I want the main photo, the lead photo to look like. And and but we also have an extremely talented photographer, Alonho Frankly, who has been working with us for a long time. And he's just one of those people that is absolutely gifted in what he does you can throw him in anywhere even if there's no light he'll capture something really beautiful and all I have to do really is tell him the story that I'm trying to tell I mean we also have a rhythm now too. tell him the story the main elements and he'll get in there and make it really really great but you know the lead photo is everything if it's if it's off it can throw you you really have to put, you know, some time into considering how it can impact the story or even take away from it. So, so we sit and think about it a lot and it winds up working out really well.
0: You've talked about people, you've talked about policy. I feel like I've, I've gone into this presuming that most people know what Eater is, but I think my mom probably doesn't. So we're going <laughs> to help my mom here uh, sure. and we're going to get, uh, what, what are the principles of the Eater, I guess, franchise of websites and what they try to do?
1: Well, let me break it down for you. So, and for your mom. Uh, So Eater is a national company and it's under the umbrella of Vox Media, V-O-X. And it's the second largest digital media company in the country. And all we do is digital, not uh, with the exception of New York Magazine, that's also a part of the company. And, and so we've got 21 sites throughout the country that do exactly the same thing that we do in Eater Los Angeles. And all we do is cover anything related to hospitality. So that's restaurants, bars, cafes, clubs, trends, openings, closings, anything that fits underneath that window. I wrote a story about fried chicken from grocery stores. for dinner or lunch. And, and it was one of the most popular stories that we've had this month. So if we can talk about food and people eating it somewhere, and I can figure out a way, an angle to, to make it into a good story, my, and my editors go for it, I'll be writing it. And, and we tend to publish at least on our site for Los Angeles between three and six stories between Monday through Friday or less. And, you know, and most of the time they're very short, like anywhere from like two to 400 words. And then we also have the long form stories like the fun, uh, the funnel cake story that are easily somewhere in the neighborhood of 15, 1500 words or more. And that's, that's what we do. We are re- restaurant reporters, journalists, whatever you want to call it. We do not do reviews. And we leave that for other publications to do because we just want to focus on giving our readers a good idea of what's happening in the landscape of restaurants and hospitality.
0: You mentioned people, you mentioned politics. Trends is another one that you brought up as well. And there is a a trend, there's a dining trend in LA that is shifting at the moment. You did a piece on pop-up restaurants. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you just tell us about that one?
1: Sure. Well, pop-ups were the, the star of 2020 because everyone was in and was tired of cooking and wanted to have something delicious that they didn't have to prepare on their own. And what was really great is that all of these pop-ups were so unique from the next and a good percentage of them were from chefs that weren't working because there was no work. And so they were able to set up a delivery system or a pickup system from their homes or a ghost kitchen, you know, where they could prepare in an actual commercial kitchen but didn't have a storefront and not pay ridiculous overhead and so some people did extremely well and are going to be some of them are going to be opening up restaurants but because it's experienced a massive dip because vaccination rates are super high right now infection level and death levels for covid are very low Uh, the county la county itself is reopening fully as of this coming tuesday And so what does everyone want to do after being home for 15 months? They want to go out and they don't necessarily want to pick up food to take home. And so there's been a massive dip of these in business for these people where they've seen a loss of revenue anywhere from 20
0: to 40%. So, all right, we've gone through three different stories that you've talked about. Can you take one of those and explain how it went from your idea to the end and just is there a, an anecdote mm. of something that happened along the way with process
1: yeah let's see out of all those uh stories well let's let's talk about the fried chicken story the grocery sure. store fried chicken i pitched that story um, before covid and and i was actually about to dive into it right around late february early march and and of course that changed everything and also too we weren't certain about you know, delis in grocery stores at the moment. And also too, we, we made a change within our own organization to try not to encourage people to go out too much. And, and so, yeah, so I sat on that story for quite a while. And, but when I picked it back up, I felt a little overwhelmed at going out and trying a bunch of places that offered fried chicken from their grocery stores. My, my initial headline was why is fried chicken from grocery stores in LA is so good what or something along those lines and it more morphed into something else after my boss said look just choose five places go and try them out and then just come up with like somewhat of a personal essay but at the same time get some quotes and and we just kept it really simple and I also find that that Simplicity in the process only helps to produce a really great story, and and so there was a period for like once a week I would just go into a grocery store, and just get a bag of chicken or a box of chicken, and and try it. Spoke to a bunch of different chefs that I know or restaurant owners, and got their own opinions about grocery store chicken. It's a good thing that they have very strong opinions and positive <laughs> ones about grocery store fried chicken because I got the best quotes and, and those interviews lasted no more than five minutes because you have, I have a very strong opinion about grocery store chicken. i you love it or hate it. And, and then it turns out that I had a personal experience with grocery store fried chicken that I decided to add at the end before talking about the individual stores that um, helped solidify everyone believing and knowing that you have this personal connection or lack of to this item and, and I think that wound we'll up helping out the story that much more.
0: Those are certainly the, the, the kinds of stories that I like to write, albeit not on the food side, but personal connection is certainly very important. Now, uh, speaking of which, about 10 days ago, you sent out a Twitter thread. Folks from outside of LA, stop trying to make LA what it isn't. I would summarize it as we may not have the best blank, but what we have is pretty darn good. So that tweet uh, went... <laughs> bananas it went bananas you later said people come here with an expectation that's not grounded in reality and that isn't their fault you're feeling that well i'll let you speak to it but what's going on here what are what are people getting wrong
1: well you know i mean we we are los angeles i i wasn't born here but i we moved here when i was three i consider myself an angelino I also have noticed with the people who come out here, or just remarks from people who are not from Southern California or California period, tend to have some preconceived notions about what it's what it really is. They think that every corner is gonna look like Beverly Hills and the beach, and it doesn't. In fact, that's a very small slice of Los Angeles and how it's all going to be super glamorous. And, and it, it just isn't, that's just not my experience of LA. That's in fact, that's not the experience of most people that I know of LA and, but being in the position that I am, I get a lot of direct messages on Twitter of people who are transplants from elsewhere, asking me where to find something that's not native to here. And, and my response, and it's usually around pizza or bagels. And my (laughs) response was like, well, we don't really have that, but we also have this and, and it's great. And, and I just heard yet another person had another conversation with someone who just insisted that, you know, LA should have X, Y, and Z. And I was just like, oh my God, I can't anymore. And, and it's not just about LA. It's about anywhere that you go. Like, I want to try poutine in Canada. Like yes. I, I just do, I'm not going to expect them to make a breakfast burrito, <laughs> which, which is ubiquitous <laughs> here. And, or I'm not going to go to Hawaii and say, you guys don't have any tacos. <laughs> like, it's just, it's the same thing. And so it was less about, I found that a lot of people on the thread were getting fully caught up in the whole, like, well, well, LA it sounds like you think you're making it special, especially the folks from San Francisco. I did notice that they got really hung up on, on one thing they were upset because in the tweet I listed like the South, New York, South Carolina. I just took a slice of a few uh, a few states or cities yep. and decided to compare and contrast them, you know, of, of dishes that excel in those areas versus ones that don't. And only because I didn't want my tweets to be too long, but the, the San Francisco folks got really pissed at me saying, well, you didn't even mention us. And I'm like, it's totally not the point. In fact, I used to live in San Francisco I I know the food very well. I'm also a food writer. So I just don't feel like anyone, I think feel like you have your absolutely distinct Bay Area, San Francisco flavor versus LA. And it's not a competition. And in fact, we don't feel that way towards San Francisco. I think it's an awesome city, Yep. but, but yeah, I, it was really interesting to see people get very defensive very quickly. And, and, and the best thing to do is just to handle it super calmly and just ask questions and ignore the trolls and, and hope that, you know, maybe I made an impact in someone's life to like, you know, like when you go somewhere, like ask, Hey, what's good. No matter where you
0: are. Yep. Well, my rule when I when I travel is I sample the pizza wherever I go with no preconceived expectations. I just want what represents that city. Um, But anyway, that's that's me. And also, this is me too. The last time I was in L.A., I was actually driving from San Diego to Los Angeles to go to the Magic Castle, and I sat Ah! for six hours to get from San Diego to Los Angeles. So that. Spark this question, which might get me nothing here from you, but it might get a good answer. Regards. Uh, in anyway, how do L.A. traffic and food intersect?
1: Oh well, first, I'm so sorry you had to sit in traffic like that. That sounds so miserable. Yep. How do food and traffic intersect? Well, first off, it's something that you need to account for. You know, we're working on a package that I can't really talk about yet. But it involved me driving around and talking to different people over the last two months. And you living here as long as I have, you really have to plan your day around your meals. And if, because yesterday is a good example. I knew that I needed to be driving throughout Central and South LA from about 11 o'clock until about seven. And, you know, I had four different meetings and they were all in within the same area. But, you know, I I just knew that they I accounted for them to leave enough time to be with these interviewees and also eat. So so I knew that I wanted a really big breakfast. And then around three, four o'clock, I knew that I would want something to eat. And so I knew that before I left my part of town, I needed a good coffee. I got a Thai iced coffee from the joint around the corner. And then went through my interviews, my first round of interviews, took a little bit longer than possible, had a phone call that I had to make at 2.30, wrapped that up, knew I needed to eat, went over to this place called Sunday Gravy to sit down, because I know the owners. I sat down and ate something, was on my computer, you know, just just going through notes. And then by that point, it was around 4.30, and and I knew that I wasn't going to drive back to my side of town in rush hour. So I knew that I needed to find a cafe and I had figured out which ones would be the best route beforehand. So, so all these plot points were, I mean, I quite literally had a, a Google map getting me from point to point and making sure that I made the most of my route. But food is absolutely at the center of all of those because who wants to be out
0: and about and really hungry and grumpy? <laughs> yep, indeed. All right, on a more um, serious note, I think we're of a similar age, mid 40s or We're black female food journalists. Uh, I ask this because it's something I don't know. How well are non-white males represented in the food in the food writing industry? We're not. Okay.
1: <laughs> I find that the majority of food writers that I've encountered are mostly white women, and I am extremely lucky to work with some of the best in the business. And it's and. I'm also very lucky. I have a company that is, sees value in making sure that our coverage is is diverse. There aren't a lot of Black reporters at Eater, but we have a lot more Black reporters than we do Latino reporters and, and management sees that as a problem. And so they're working in their best way to navigate that. And for me in the city that I reside in, I consider that doubly important because 50% of the people here are Latino and a huge percentage of them speak Spanish. And there just are stories that you cannot get unless you speak the language. And while I would never say that I'm fluent, I'm pretty good at, at, you know, at least being able to ask general questions. And it's something that I want to work on because that is a huge part of the city that I would like to have access to, to be able to ask someone questions that can help bring a story to light would would be wonderful. But I think that coming from someone from that background would make it a much more rich experience, not just for uh, the company but for our readers. So you know, there's there's just some things that that you know. Certain reporters can get over others. You know, there. You know, when I went into this one restaurant called Post and Beam, which is in South LA, a mostly black neighborhood, there was uh, the owner who uh, recently retired was looking at me like I had three heads. And I said, "Is everything okay?" And he was a black man, is, and he said, "You know, it's really nice to see you here." He was. He totally was putting me off beforehand. Like he was just not not remotely interested. And and it's not like I'm going to say, Hey, I'm a black reporter coming down to black restaurant. I, I just, you know, I just said, you know, I'd love to talk to you about your restaurant and came in and our conversations wound up developing into, you know, a work relationship that is, that is one that I really treasure because we we've stayed in touch, even though he's retired, but it's, I think it's important for people from certain backgrounds to be able to tell stories I'm not saying that no one else can but you can definitely get a
0: lot more than most and it's important on from my end I presume it helps for people like me to amplify the voices of of people that are I guess underrepresented in the in the field
1: yeah it helps it helps a lot
0: Okay, so a couple of advice-related questions specific to our audience here. First of all, this one I refer to as uh, the Emmy question because Emmy, who has worked (laughs) as an intern, always asks it, and it was a great question. Is there a void in the food journalism industry that a young aspiring reporter could try to fill? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there is,
1: you know, there are this is the one question when I read it, I'm like, that's good, but there's, there's a lot of voids. I, I do feel like the youth of today can help us with, I mean, like the best example I can come up with is TikTok. Like I find it so fascinating. I have an account. I haven't posted a single video because it's not like I'm intimidated by it. It's more of a time issue. And also too, I'm not necessarily committed to it. But I do see it as another medium for telling stories. And it just seems to me that younger folks have a very solid grasp on that app. And not just that, but Instagram. And that void, I could see moving mountains for sure, especially with TikTok. I also believe that more young folks can could value their voice a little bit more and not worry so much about having so much experience. If you have a certain amount of skill set with putting words together or audio or video, you know, I actually want to learn from you. I, I I believe in having different sets of friends that are of different ages. And thank goodness, because we get so much from one another. And so I just want them to be a little bit more confident in realizing that they have as much to contribute to the food landscape. Because I feel like today, like so many of them just get dismissed as like millennial or, or, Z, or Z and like, they don't know anything yet. And I believe that they do. And, and I, I do wish that I could see a lot more young folks, you know, just jump right in and just start writing stories and, and being a part of the, the foodscape that is a little less about being an influencer and more about telling the story. I I have a thing uh, about food influencers, a very tricky relationship with food influencers. I, I I don't necessarily find it a healthy thing to be when dealing with restaurants. I've just seen too many take advantage of restaurant owners who are already operating on a thin margin and, you know, getting a free meal doesn't necessarily qualify you for writing a review on the place. And uh, so, yeah, I I feel like there's a healthier way to go about it. And, and I do see a handful of people doing it on Instagram and TikTok, but I'd like to see a lot more. And then as far as anything else that's missing, I don't know, I'm going to have to let
0: you know. No, that's good. It's a, it's a symbiotic relationship. One can help the other, certainly. So this is the fourth straight episode where we've interviewed someone who created something from scratch. You were talking about CJ earlier. Could you just explain what advice you would have to someone who wants to create?
1: Just create and put it out there and don't worry about it being perfect. And probably the biggest lesson that I ever received from someone who really helped make a difference for me is that with all of these ideas that you might have for this one thing, story, video, written work, choose a theory, a thesis and run with it. And it will 99% of the time end up looking completely different than what you theorized. And that's a good thing because when you go through and do the reporting, you will find things that differ with your idea. And the thing is to either verify or, or refute those things by talking to more people. And once you have done that, just make a choice and, and have someone with, with whose eyes that you trust, whose judgment that you trust, take a look at it and develop a relationship where you can have a healthy editorial relationship. Because I am so lucky to have the editors that I do. They make me look amazing. And <laughs> it's it's you know, there's just you can't think of everything. You you just can't. And and so to have and and I don't accept every edit. So to to just to have that is something that I treasure. I'm so lucky. And and not just at at Eater, but also I I contribute to KCRW radio. And those editors are at both organizations are some of the best in the business and, you know, and it's because they have a clear idea of what the audience, what, or at least the voice that they're writing for, for their audience. And so my vision needs to fit within that. And when it's really clear, that's when you make the most impact and just, you know, don't get so hung up on all the major details. Just, just let it flow and let it out. And, and it will be great. You will come up with something great. I mean, that's what I have to tell myself when I'm like, I'm reading it back to myself and saying, oh my God, this is the worst thing ever written. And, and then in the back of my head, because I've been doing this so long, I always have this voice saying, it's gonna come out great. Just keep moving forward. It's gonna come out great. And, and it does, or, or it's just okay. And I'm like, you know what? That wasn't the greatest thing I ever wrote, but I, tomorrow's another day. And then when you're done, move on to the next thing.
0: yep exactly you sound like you would be you sound like you would be a very good mentor
1: i've got my mentees all over the place (laughs) nice
0: very nice all right so two to wrap up here one Mm -hmm. what do you like most about food journalism
1: i like that there that a lot of the stories are not just about food that it's about the people who make the food and to me, getting to know these individuals is, and what their mission is and their ideas are is the most fascinating part about it, and I, I love that, and it, when, it will always fascinate me. Even if I decided to move into another realm of journalism, I'll, I'll always be a food journalist for that reason.
0: That's the same that I feel about sports. It's the same yeah. thing. It's about the people. Is All right. And then the last question. Is there a journalist or organization that you're not affiliated with that you would like to salute?
1: Mm, there's two organizations that I'd like to salute. The first one in Los Angeles is called LA Taco. And Javier Cabral is the editor-in-chief of that publication, which he took over, I think, maybe two years ago. And he's doing an amazing job of doing that same thing of, of finding people and their stories and not just about food, about culture and politics. And it is, he, the publication has such a good voice and I appreciate what they bring to the landscape. I think they're fantastic. And then number two is the San Francisco Chronicles food section, which is headed by Serena Day. And she is a superstar but so is her team of writers and columnists who put together, in my opinion, probably the best food section in the country. They dig really deep on investigative pieces, cultural um, commentary. One of their writers, Soleil Ho, was commenting about the problems of Bon Appetit before they had their massive... Overthrow last last year, yeah. and she'd been talking about it for years about their problems and 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 so she was well ahead of the game and uh, her observations I trust and find them essential to the foodscape not just in San Francisco but all over the
0: country. Nice, I like uh, both of those I'm, as a subscriber to the Chronicle, I can appreciate that. Excellent. All right, thank you, uh, Mona, for taking the time to join us. Best of luck, sure. uh, and thank we you appreciate so much. Your my food journalism experience consists of writing reviews of pizza places of the West 50s in Manhattan for a community newspaper my senior year of high school. But I can appreciate what Mona said about writing about people and covering the industry. That kind of writing is very cool and makes for fun and interesting work and a career path. Check out the links to the stories I've included in the show notes, and check out la.eater.com to see more of her work. The Journalism Salute is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Robert Cole, who ran the journalism department at my alma mater, Trenton State College, the College of New Jersey, for more than 30 years. The only Dr. Cole food story I know is one I've said here before. When he took his sports writing class to a Phillies game, he came well-stocked with tuna fish sandwiches. He liked them. A lot. (laughs) And I think you would have liked Mona's approach, too. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod. And you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.